You found a podcast where you'll hear the truth, and we will praise Jesus' name. We stand for the Bible and won't back down from it, although it don't bring much fame. Some folks will like it, some will try to deny it. God's word will always stand true. It's been tried in the fire, still good in this hour. A prayer to be a blessing. All right, friends, welcome to the Pod King podcast, where we study the Bible according to the way that it was written in the original languages and in the King James Version. Today is our first podcast ever, and I'm very excited, glad to be doing this, and we're going to study the book of Hebrews. We're going to start off chapter one, verse one, go through the book of Hebrews and study it to see exactly what the writer of Hebrews was trying to tell the people in his day and what he's saying to us in our day. In studying any book, you begin to see why it was written, and this is certainly true concerning the book of Hebrews. The most important thing for a reader to learn while reading or studying a book is why the book was written or the purpose behind the book. I believe it is imperative for us to understand God's word for this same reason. It's one thing to own a Bible. It's another thing to read the Bible. It's one thing to read the Bible, but it's another thing to study the Bible. It's one thing to study the Bible, but it's another thing to understand the Bible. Allow me to ask you a few questions today. Do you own a Bible? Then you ought to read it. Do you read the Bible? Then you ought to study it. Do you study the Bible? Then you ought to understand it. Just going by this premise, this little simple way of understanding things, I believe that it would take away a lot of our lack of comprehension and the problems that a lot of people face when they go to read the Bible. I've been told many times through my life, I don't understand what the Bible says, therefore I don't read it. I don't understand those words, and so I don't get any understanding from it. The best way to get understanding of something is to look into what the words mean. It's one of those things that you've got to do. If you're going to understand anything, you must understand the words that are being spoken. And so I personally believe the book of Hebrews to be one of the most important books in the Bible. The book of Hebrews takes the Pentateuch, which is the five books of Moses, and the whole law and begins to expound upon what it means to believers while filtering it through Jesus Christ, which is a very important key. If you're going to study the Bible, you've got to look at it through the eyes, through the lens of Jesus Christ. I want to begin this study by reading the first three verses together of the book of Hebrews, and then I want to study those three verses in little bite-sized pieces before moving on. Hebrews 1 and 1 through 3 says, God, who at sundry times and in divers manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. 
Now, there's dozens of what I would call takeaway points that one could dive in and do a major study on that's found in just these three verses. Number one, I want to point out that God has spoken to his people. Isn't that a wonderful thought? God has spoken at various times. We're also told that God has spoken in various manners. God has spoken through visions. He has spoken to us through dreams. He's spoken to us through prophets, through seers, through sages. He has spoken to us through angels and judges and kings and elders and handmaidens, and the list could go on. He spoke to the fathers, or more specifically, the Jewish patriarchs. The very mention of God speaking smacks of divine action. When you hear God said, God spoke, thus saith the Lord God, that means that God is taking action even though he is only speaking. A divine action is something that God does. That's something we ought to think about right there. God is doing something when he speaks. When God speaks, it's not just speech, it's creative action. As a matter of fact, the very first action God took in creation is when he spoke. He simply said, let there be light, and there was light. The means or instrument of how he chose to speak for years was through the prophets. Another takeaway point that I think is worth mentioning right here is that God is still speaking to us here in these last days. He speaks to us through his son now, rather than using prophets or other sources. The Son of God is also known as the Word of God. For anyone who has never studied the Bible, that may be something that you did not know. But anyone who has ever studied the Bible or knows much about being a Christian at all understands that the Word of God is not just the Bible. That's the written Word. Jesus is the living Word. And the Son of God is also known as the Word of God. Knowing this, this is what's going to set the tone for how the writer of Hebrews will undertake his explanation process. If God were to speak to us, he must use words to get his point across. This is why he gave us the eternal word, which will always and forever speak to mankind. Can you imagine serving idols or images? Some people have gods that cannot even speak to them. Our God not only can speak to us, but he wants to speak to us. He not only wants to speak to us, he has spoken to us. What would this God who can speak say unto his people? How would he choose to speak to us or to convey his words to us? Well, the Bible tells us he speaks to us through his son, the same son that he has appointed heir of all things. To study Jesus as the appointed heir alone would take just several days, just unlocking all of the powerful meanings within that statement. But Jesus is the instrument of how the worlds were made. Jesus is the agent of creation, as found in verse 3, where it says that he upholds all things by the word of his power when he had by himself purged our sins. You realize that it's him that made the worlds? It's He that was the brightness of God's glory. It was Jesus that was the express image of his person. And now Jesus upholds all things by the word of his power. There's power in that if we could get a hold of that. Jesus is the one who made the world and he was in the world and the world knew him not according to John chapter one. Let me read you verse 10 of that chapter. 
He was in the world and the world was made by him and the world knew him not. Do you realize that the world still doesn't know him today? The world has no idea who Jesus is. Oh, yes, they know the name, but if they really knew him, they wouldn't curse his name. Oh, I have no doubt that they know who he is as far as in Jesus from Nazareth. And he was a great prophet. He was a good man, but they don't know him if that's all they know about him. I want to go into verse three and examine it very deeply, for I believe there's a treasure of knowledge to be had here. And just to warn you in advance, Hebrews chapter one and verse three is one of my favorite Bible verses. I love to study it and I love to teach it and expound upon it. I'm going to read it to you one more time. And then I want to look at five things about Jesus within this verse that stand out to me. Who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Now we're told the five definite things right here by the writer of Hebrews in verse three. We're told first, Jesus is the brightness of God's glory and his majesty. In the Greek, this means that Christ is the apagosma. That's a Greek word right there for the brightness of God's glory. He is the wisdom of God that was cited in the Old Testament. Now, keep that thought in mind, for we'll be coming back to that for a more comprehensive study on that term and what it means. The second thing that the writer tells us about Jesus is he is the express image of God's person. That means he's the exact representation of God's being and his nature. This means that he is the hypostasis in the Greek that's defined as the exact imprint of God's nature. If you want to understand God, you must understand him through Jesus Christ. The third thing that we come to, Jesus upholds all things, and he's still upholding all things by the word of his power. This means that Jesus is the sustainer of all things. The word for upholds states an ongoing activity. He is still doing this. Not only did he do it, he is still in the action of doing it. It also tells us that his word of power is eternal, for he will always uphold all things. He upholds these things by his word. So therefore, the word is eternal. His power is eternal, and his work is eternal. Everything about him is eternal. The fourth thing is Jesus has purged our sins. He alone can provide purification from sin. No one can conquer sin without Christ being involved. You can join any program you want to, 12 steps, three steps. It doesn't matter how many steps you have in the program. If Jesus doesn't do it, it will not be done. The fifth thing, Jesus has now sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He occupies the throne at the right hand of God. Now, I know a lot of people balk at that, and they think that only God is going to sit on the throne. Well, let me tell you, God does sit on the throne, but let me read you Revelation 3 and 21. Jesus says, To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my Father in his throne. The throne is shared. This tells us that Jesus is co-equal and co-ruler with the Father. 
I know there's a lot of groups that do not believe that, but that is scriptural. Not only does Revelation 3 and 21 tell us that, but many other places these things are brought out in scripture. But this is one of the most clear places where Jesus says he has a throne, he will be sitting on it, and he's sitting with the Father in his throne. So Jesus and the Father are co-rulers of heaven. They're ruling heaven, and they're co-equal in their power. Jesus didn't say, I sit underneath my Father in his throne. He didn't say, I sit beside him in a lower position. He didn't say any of that. So we understand that they are co-equal and co-eternal and co-ruling together. This list that we have examined is just an explanation of what the next verse declares in the book of Hebrews chapter 1. There's much that's going to be said. I'll go ahead and I'll read you verse 4, but then we're going to back up into 3 again and look at it a lot deeper. Verse 4 says, Being made so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance attained a more excellent name than they. Now, all of this is it's in regard to him being made heir of all things. Some people get hung up on it where it states that it's by inheritance that he has obtained a more excellent name than the angels. But allow me to explain a few things right here. The previous list that we went through, those five things in verse three, is not a list of the things Christ has inherited. He has not inherited the glory, the majesty, or the express image of God. He didn't inherit the power to uphold all things. He didn't inherit the ability to purge sins, nor did he inherit the power to sit down at the right hand of God. This list explains why Jesus is the worthy one, the only one worthy to do this, the only one capable of doing these things. It's because of all these things that he is the only one worthy to be the heir of all things. He alone is the only one who is worthy to be the supreme sacrifice. And I could keep going on with many analogies here. He is the only one worthy. They look for someone worthy to open the seals on the book. And guess who the only one that was found who was worthy? It was Jesus. All right, so in verse 3, it begins with a characterization of who and what Jesus is. You could call it a description of who he is, along with the description of what he does. When Hebrews 1 and 3 calls Jesus the brightness of God's glory, think of it this way. Can the sunshine and its rays that come from the sun be separated from the sun itself? Really, that's not possible. Is not the sunshine just the showing forth and the brightness of the sun itself? Jesus and the Father cannot be separated any more than the sun and its radiance that shines forth from it can be separated. Is not Jesus only the shining forth of the Father? No, he's not only just that, but he's much more than that. The express image of God's person is also defined as an identical representation. He shares the same nature and essence with the Father. Jesus is the revealer of God to mankind. I want to look a little deeper into the word we see in the King James Version as brightness. The Greek word used here is apagasma, and it's only used in this one place in the Bible. Now, together, it's a conjunction word. It's two words combined together. And together, it means radiance, effulgence. It means the brightness. It means a gleam from something bright. But once separated into two Greek words that it consists of, we can see a little bit more of what it means. The first part is apa. 
That means to be off or away from. It can also mean completion. The second part of that word is agazo, which means to beam forth. All right, so let's put both of these words together for a fuller explanation of this term. He is the radiance of the Father that shines off of him and away from him. No wonder, he said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. No wonder, the writer said, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. How did Jesus declare him? By showing his express image and by shining forth his glory. Glory, like the sun, must shine, my friends. Those scriptures I I quoted to you, They come from a couple of different places. John 1 and 14 was, And the word was made flesh and dwelled among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 18 also says, No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. Isn't that powerful? There's so much in the word of God that we'll never be able to pull out of this, but we can dig down into it and understand it better. John 12 and 45, Jesus tells them, he that seeth me seeth him that sent me. John 14 and 9, he was telling them in my father's house are many mansions. And he goes down through that and he says, you know, if you want to go, I'll come back and I'll receive you unto myself. Whither I go, you know, the way, you know, Thomas says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. In verse six, no man cometh unto the father, but by me. If you had known me, you'd have known my father. Philip, he breaks in and says, hey, won't you show us the father and it'll suffice us. Verse 9, Jesus saith unto him, Have I been so long time with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that has seen me has seen the Father. And how sayest thou then, Shew us the Father? What are you talking about, Philip? Do you not understand? Oh, I'm afraid that he probably understood all that his mind would allow him. But could I tell you, I'm glad that we can have understanding and that understanding only comes through the word of God. Now, I want to look a little deeper again. I want to dig down into something that a lot of people really don't see any need in. And I want to dig into the word apagasma. Now, our word apagasma is an interesting word because it's found only one time in the Bible. So to understand it better, we're going to have to find where it was used at in other places and then dig down into it and see how it was used in those places. Now, there is another book that was written in the Second Temple Jewish period, and I believe that it's it, it'd be wise for us to look into this for a little bit. I, I want you to understand something with me. We need to examine the extra canonical verse, Wisdom 7 and 26, okay? I want to go over the whole section, which describes the wisdom that Solomon spoke of in the book of Proverbs. Wisdom and Wisdom 7 and 26 is defined as the reflection of eternal light, a perfect mirror of the God who works and an image of his goodness. Hmm, that sounds familiar to Hebrews 1 and 3, doesn't it? who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. Boy, that sounds a lot like it. The reflection of eternal light. That's the express image. That's the reflection of his glory. A perfect mirror of the God who works, the image of his goodness. 
Wow. Now, I want to read to you, and I want you to understand for just a moment, I am not saying that this should be in our Bibles, but I am saying that I do believe that there are other inspired writings that are not found within Scripture that never made it in. I believe anybody that writes notes as they're moved on by the Holy Ghost before they preach, that is inspired writing. Am I saying it belongs in the Bible? No. But I am saying that the Holy Ghost has inspired more people than just the writers of the Bible. Many people have wrote songs under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost. Some wrote songs only for the monetary value, but some wrote them because God gave them the song. Does that mean the song belongs in our Bible? No, I'm not saying that, but that's where I put the book of wisdom. That's where I put some of the other extra canonical books because they don't belong in the Bible, but there is some value to a few of these books. I don't take many of them. I reject the authority of most of them. So I do want to make a few things clear. While these verses were not considered inspired by the founding fathers of Christianity, they do definitely bear witness to the truth right here. And that's what I want you to see. The whole reason I have submitted this portion is in verse 26, the English word that we're going to come across, reflection, is translated from the Greek text, and that word is apagasma. The only other place in any biblical literature that this word is found is Hebrews 1 and 3 and wisdom 726. So to understand that word, we're going to have to understand it in both settings to see exactly what was being said. What's unique about this is the wisdom of Solomon was written some hundred years before Christ, while Hebrews was written somewhere around 64 AD. That means that they were only written about 160 years apart, which is not very long if you really think about it. It's also worth noting that many Jews had a copy of the Septuagint and the wisdom of Solomon is contained within the Septuagint. That means that the writer of Hebrews would have known the wisdom of Solomon when he was writing his book. And so he probably tied together the wisdom that Solomon spoke of in Proverbs chapter 8, verse 22 through 31 in our King James Version Bibles with the description of wisdom and wisdom 7 and 26. When he penned his conclusion in Hebrews 1 and 3, it's almost definite that the writer of Hebrews is drawing on both of these. The book of Hebrews is definitely considered as an inspired uh, writing by the Holy Ghost. The author of it called Jesus the Apagasma or wisdom from the Old Testament. Now, apagasma is the word study that we're looking at. In most Greek texts, it's defined as radiance or reflection. So when we dig down into that, we begin to see exactly what the scriptures are saying. There's some interesting words there. And uh, when you go through the Greek, it talked about he was the brightness of his glory. Brightness is apagasma. Glory is doxa. That means the glory of a deity. We know that it's a specific deity. And the word doxa here is being used as a genitive noun. Now, that means it's restricted to a specific thing or a characterization. So, in other words, this reference is speaking of a particular deity. And so, this God is the God of the Hebrews, Jehovah. Okay, so we must keep that in our mind. When we get to reading on further, we begin to see where it talks about that he is the express image of God's person, 
That Hebrew word, or Greek word, rather, means representation or stamp. It's another genitive noun that follows it where it says nature or essence. He is the image of his person. That image, he is the same nature. He's of the same essence. The Greek word rhema is very similar to logos. They're both translated as word. It says he upholds all things by the word of his power. Right there, word is rhema, and it's linked with logos. Logos, we know, is the word. That's what you find when you read John chapter 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. That word is logos. Rhema is the other word that we find that's translated as word in the New Testament. Greek has two words for word, (laughs) pardon the pun. Now, the Greek word here that we begin to see as power is dunamis. Now, that's miracle working power. It's God's might or divine strength. It implies that it must come from God or a deity. The writer of Hebrews is drawing a parallel between Jesus and the wisdom of God. So there's a few passages that I think would do us good if we would compare them and think about what's being said within them. In Luke chapter 11 and verse 49 through 51, I want you to listen to this. Now we're talking about Christ being the wisdom of God from Proverbs chapter 8 and from Wisdom chapter 7. Wisdom, of course, is not in our Bibles. Proverbs is. Luke is. And listen to what Jesus says in the book of Luke. Therefore also said the wisdom of God, I will send them prophets and apostles, and some of them they shall slay and persecute, that the blood of all the prophets which was shed from the foundation of the world may be required of this generation, from the blood of Abel unto the blood of Zacharias, which perished between the altar and the temple. Verily I say unto you, it shall be required of this generation." Notice that the wisdom of God is spoken of as if it is a person. Now, 1 Corinthians 1 and 24, please listen to this. Paul speaking, and he says, But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Hmm. So if wisdom were to speak to you, I think it would sound a whole lot like Christ, don't you? I believe that this is the Bible's way of letting us know that Jesus is the wisdom of God. Let's go to Matthew 23 and listen to verses 33 through 39. You serpents, you generation of vipers, how can you escape the damnation of hell? Wherefore, behold, I send unto you prophets. Now listen, Jesus said, I send unto you. I send unto you prophets and wise men and scribes, and some of them ye shall kill and crucify, and some of them ye shall scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, that upon you may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth. And we know this. We just read this in Luke. But did you notice in Luke, he said, therefore saith the wisdom of God. Here in Matthew, Jesus says, behold, I send unto you. Ah, so Jesus is saying I am the wisdom of God. In the Old Testament, wisdom is who sent forth the prophets. But in Matthew 23, Jesus says he's the one who sent them forth. That creates a point of conflict for those who believe that wisdom is only a quality. But those who believe wisdom is an Old Testament reference to Christ knows what this is saying. I want to make a few points here regarding wisdom in Christ before I close. The wisdom of God is not created. It's eternal just like God is. 
Christ is not created. He is eternal, just as the Father is. Wisdom has always been present and existed with God. Christ has always been present and existed with God. If there was ever a point in time that wisdom did not exist, then there would have been a point in time that God had no wisdom. We know that that's impossible, for we don't serve a dumb deity, do we? He's an omniscient God. If wisdom is not eternal, how was God smart enough to invent or create wisdom? How could somebody be wise enough to know that there needs to be a thing called wisdom without having or possessing some form of wisdom? That's why I refuse the notion that wisdom is a creation of God. I believe it's a part of God. There's never been a time when God lacked wisdom. The Jews believed that the Torah was this wisdom that we're studying about. In essence, it makes the Torah equal with God. Now, the Torah is the Old Testament. Some people say it's only the five books of Moses, but that's the Pentateuch. The Torah is the whole Old Testament. The Torah is the word of God. Now, I want you to let that sink in for just a few moments, and I'm going to close on these thoughts. If the Jews would only receive God's word in the right manner, they would be right. If they understood that God's word is deity and that it's Jesus, Jesus is God's word, they would be right. But they look at the Holy Scriptures and they say that is deity. No, not quite, but they say it's equal with God, which is the same thing because God is a deity. I know there's a tightrope to walk right here concerning the statement that wisdom is Christ. I'm not saying that Christ is ethereal. I'm not saying that he's just a quality. I'm not saying he's just a state of mind. I'm not saying that everybody who possesses wisdom possesses Christ even. But I am solely speaking of the wisdom of God that the Bible speaks of in Scripture. Some people are wise in their own fields. I'm referring only to wisdom that God gives to people in the Bible. In Jeremiah 4 and 22, the Lord said that his people are wise to do evil, but to do good they have no knowledge. Now, that wisdom cannot be of Christ because it's not godly. The wisdom of God is part of God, and it can't be separated from him. Jesus is part of the Father. He's begotten of him. He cannot be separated from him. The Torah or the law does not fulfill the five requirements listed in verse 3, but Jesus Christ does. All right, I'm going to close this study for today. What we plan on doing from here on, I'm going to try to take some questions by email. If you have a question concerning the Bible, I want you to email me. I'm going to give you my email address. It is dkministries1977 at yahoo.com. DK, which stands for Donnie King, that's my name, dkministries1977 at yahoo.com. If you have a question concerning the Bible and you want us to tackle it, we'll take the last few minutes of our Bible study and answer questions that have been sent in. So while we're just getting started today, I will probably have a question or two that I have been asked through the years that I will use over the next day or so until some of those come rolling in. If you have any comments or anything you want to add about what you have learned or some way that this study has helped you, we want you to feel free to send those in also, and we'll try to read some of those from time to time. If not every day, we will try to get to them at some point. We want this to become a daily study in your life. We want to be a help to you. We're not here to make a name for ourselves, but to further the kingdom of God by spreading his word and by making sure that the word spread is understood by the believers. All right. So I want you to know today, this will be a daily study 
We will be coming on Monday through Friday, and we will be studying the Bible each and every day, and we invite you to come on and join with us. But until tomorrow, we're going to sign off for now. We hope you have a great day, and may the Lord bless you. You found a podcast where you'll hear the truth, and we will praise Jesus' name. We stand for the Bible and won't back down from it, although it don't bring much fame. Some folks will like it, some will try to deny it. God's word will always stand true. It's been tried in the fire, still good in this hour. Our prayer to be a blessing 